0: hello and welcome back to the joe's art history podcast a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day it's episode 26 and this week i have an incredibly fascinating episode for you all and i'm really really excited for you guys to hear this one it was a brilliant chat today i sit down with artist and perfumer of the people michael burkalski to talk about the history of perfume and why this is an art form in itself. From magical potions for everlasting youth to bottling the scent of a new modern day woman, Michael takes us on a whistle-stop tour of the art of perfume through the ages. Only discovering and falling in love with the art and practice of making perfume a few years ago, it has taken Michael on an incredible journey of both history and alchemy combined, which has now, amazingly, intertwined into his artistic practice. What is even more interesting though is perfume has always been held in an important place within different societies throughout the history of the world. And Michael talks us through this brilliantly. And it's just an incredible thing to note, really, that perfume has always had such an important place within our lives. But what it stands for and what it symbolizes has changed with time as well. This is an incredibly interesting chat with michael and we also mention his absolutely brilliant series on youtube called plague for plague's sake where michael looks at different plague cures in the form of different perfumes and i will leave a link to that in the show notes below because it is absolutely brilliant and if you have any interest at all in history and really the sort of inner workings of The medieval mind, I would say, then definitely you absolutely have to check it out. It is fascinating. So, really, all that's left to do is sit back and relax and enjoy as Michael and I talk you through perfume as practice. So, perfumery and Michael, you call yourself the perfumer of the people. So (laughs) which I love, I think that's a brilliant title. Where did the the interest in love and perfumery come from?
1: Well, I, I think my my particular sort of love for it uh, it kind of came from it came from art like an art background. So I was sort of trained in art, went to uni to study art, uh, and during my time at uni, um, I started becoming interested in how to depict smell uh, in art because it's something that hasn't really been sort of looked at particularly um, in any particular depth really. So I started looking at still life works um, and thinking about ways of depicting them as scent. So sort of to give a a simple example, if you see an apple in a still life piece of work, then I was trying to think of ways to sort of evoke the scent of, of that apple rather than to depict it through painting. So that was kind of how it began really. Um, but I wasn't sort of sure that the thing with that was there wasn't really a discipline that I could attach myself to because scent uh, in art hasn't really got much of a discipline you know you don't think about uh, you don't think about it in terms of sort of how to make scent in art. There isn't really a, mm. a, a specific way of doing that. but however um I, I sort of I, through just a little bit of research, I sort of it became apparent that, perfume actually is very much a, a discipline that can be used within fine art because it has uh, there's a lot of discipline to it there's a very established process of making perfume and it has this huge history you know similar to the history of painting or the history of any art sort of practice really uh, so it, therefore I sort of thought well okay I'll start I'll start using perfume then however you know not knowing anything about it or how to make it or anything like anything to do with its history at that point. So I embarked on a uh, arts sort of residency uh, in uh, in Sheffield that just let me look at perfume for a year and sort of how to make artwork using the discipline of perfumery. So then I started researching perfume, experimenting with how, how to make perfume, which basically involved throwing some sort of oils together to see what happened really. Um, Uh, And then, you know, through reading and talking to uh, people in the fragrance industry and my own sort of experiments, I I sort of made my own perfumes uh, using sort of that kind of established sort of method, really. And then I started making perfumes uh, that were portraits uh, of other artists. So that was a project where I was looking at how perfume can sort of house contemporary art sort of concepts. Uh, and hit upon the idea that you could make uh, a perfume that was a portrait uh, and then i sort of um presented these portraits in contemporary sort of gallery spaces and then yeah that was kind of how it began really and um after that i started delivering workshops about making perfume and just carried on really uh experimenting and exploring the uh the discipline of perfumery
0: and I must say you have I mean I thanked you before we started recording but I have to thank you this is such an interesting history and like you said it is a complete art form like you have to you know you're an alchemist you 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 know you have to mix all these different things together and you you have an idea of perhaps what you're looking for in your head and then you end up with something completely different but you're going to take us on a little bit of a sort of history tour really of you know the development and, and the art of perfume yeah and I think it will surprise people how far it really dates back
1: yeah um it, it's it's huge it's really like to, to to look at the history of perfume is really to look at the history of of, of civilization in general really we've got um there's quite a few places that could be considered the sort of where perfume began uh i know there's uh quite a lot of places around sort of the sort of east and then there's places in like cyprus egypt that potentially is where perfume began we do know that there's a, uh, a sort of the world's first chemist who also made perfume uh, and her name was, and now uh, hopefully I've got the pronunciation right. <laughs> but it, I think it's she's called Taputi Bellet Kalim. That, that's almost certainly mm. correct. <laughs> but but um, she was around about 1200 BC, uh, and she used flowers, sort of local products basically, so floral stuff, resins, saps, in order to create um, scented items, if you like. But her, the process that she used where she gathered materials and then sort of added water and solvents and distilled them. I mean, that's not particularly dissimilar to how perfumes made today. But what I like about um, Taputi is the fact that she sort of sourced local products, which is kind of something that people, there's sort of a trend of people try, trying to get back to that kind of idea that, you know, sourcing things in a local way it is beneficial. And it's something that I've kind of used in my own sort of art practice uh, over the years, sort of sourcing, using sort of liver water from local rivers in order to make perfumes and uh, using sort of local sort of sourced sort of floral scents and herbs and things like that. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting that even though she's, you know, historically an, an old sort of chemist, uh, it turns out that. Some of her sort of practices are quite sort of almost quite fashionable today.
0: Yeah. And I think what for me, I find so fascinating about Taputi is that she, I mean, like you said, you mentioned there that, you know, she distilled these um fragrances in a way that aren't too sort of dissimilar to how we do it today. Yeah. But the role of perfume was so important. I mean, this was ancient Babylon. Yeah. Um I mean, it, it wasn't just for a cosmetic use for example what other how else would people use it
1: yeah the, the idea of perfume being this sort of um cosmetic product is actually relatively new in a way because perfume has been used for all manner of, of things uh, previously things such as uh medical uh medical reasons so that the herbs uh, uh and woods and saps and etc that they would have been sort of mixed together as almost a a medicinal sort of formula, which you could take uh, or inhale in order to essentially overcome whatever sort of illness you had. And there were things like religious sort of rituals, the idea that you could um, speak to to gods through perfumery, things like that. So, yeah, it's not just the idea of it being cosmetic. Certainly the, the medicinal sort of side of things is something that was quite prevalent for for a long time, actually, the idea that you could combine sort of scents in order to to cure somebody of, of of an ailment was practiced. Sort of certainly in Europe for well, yeah, up until I mean, obviously you have the the sort of Black Death in the, the 1350s, and people were still practicing mm. uh, the idea of scents in order to cure you around about that time. And interestingly, sometimes the uh, the cures that uh, that were conjured up usually through sort of uh, monks and alchemists and chemists, uh, they were sometimes accidentally actually an effective cure because it turned out that the herbs that they'd used had antiseptic sort of qualities to them. Um, so even though there was no sort of scientific basis for the, the, those particular herbs doing anything other than smelling nice and therefore warding off illness, it turned out that they did have um, sort of properties that that could uh, you know, cure or prevent illnesses. So kind of an interesting accident, I suppose.
0: Well that's it. And that kind of really takes us nicely on to the um so before we before we started recording and, and when you pitched this idea of oh let's talk about perfume and you sent me essentially four very sort of key moments within the history of perfume and perfumery if you will. Yeah. And that kind of really lovely leads us on to the next development yeah. um or key sort of cornerstone movement. Of perfume in Europe, and that is something called Hungry Water.
1: Yeah, Hungry Water is it's an example of uh, an alcohol-based perfume. Uh, certainly, in Europe, it's one of the first examples of an alcohol-based perfume. Uh, these days, you, you you almost certainly buy alcohol-based perfumes, but before that, you'd there'd be uh, perfumes that would the carrier would be sort of oil-based. So, uh, yeah, in Europe, it was simply the first one. It used sort of rosemarys, thymes, and herbs and sages, things like that. Um, Now, what's interesting about it is it's um, the somewhat sort of unknown. um, It's it's unknown exactly who made it. It's unknown exactly when it was made. It was made probably around the 13th or 14th century. It's called Hungry Water because it was made in Hungary for the queen. Now, we don't know exactly which queen that was, actually, but it seems, it mm. seems as though it was used in order to sort of cure her of headaches uh, and other sort of relatively small sort of ailments. So, yeah, it was it, what I like about that particular, about Hungary water, not just because it was an alcohol-based perfume and therefore significant, um, but there is this kind of dubious uh, ambiguous sort of origins which as an artist myself I quite like to sort of explore and sort of speculate on you know what what how it what it looked like who it was made for uh, and um, whilst I was researching hungry water last year uh, obviously hungry water was used for to cure ailments and obviously we had pandemic well, we still have got a pandemic going on at the moment so it was something that I used as influence for um, a video series that I made about curing people using perfumes um, and mm. it was uh, kind of k- kind of quite a fun activity because uh, it sort of showed you again it was harking back to the idea that um, sort of medicine and perfume at one point were sort of the same thing almost and again it was one of those things that it wasn't a- It was an accidentally effective cure because of the, uh, not just because of the herbs, but because of the alcohols that were used had sort of certain antiseptic qualities to them as well so yeah I I just quite like the ambiguity of it because you can sort of as an artist you can you you can explore that in your own work.
0: Well that's it and what I must say I've watched um, a few in your series and it's so so fascinating the first one that I watched was actually it was nothing kind of to do with the the sort of perfume aspect of sort of the plague it was your abracadabra card which I thought was so interesting but again just kind of having this Almost sort of like token or emblem on you was enough to sort of ward off the plague, and I, I did when I watched. it I was like, "Oh, where were you in March, Michael?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when shit hit the fan big yeah. time, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then I watched um your your rose water one, which I think is so fascinating because, of course, it's based on that um that nursery rhyme, yeah. uh, "Ring of Roses," yeah. which I don't know if people listening know is is a song about the plague and, and it's what children used to used to sing and, and what children still continue to sing I think it's so fascinating that it's inspired your series what what else have you, have you done in the series I've, I've only watched one or two of them but I've got them up on on your Instagram and I'll leave a link to them in the show notes as well but it was such an interesting idea and and yeah and a concept to explore for me
1: thank you yeah it was it was it was a it was a nice thing to do actually because it was one of those things where it was hard to hard to stay sort of motivated during that time because uh, normally the, the work that I make is interactive and people come in and touch perfume bottles and spray them and smell them but obviously nothing like that could could happen last year so it was me sort of scrabbling really for something to um, t- to make that's a video that was sort of was a series so that it was almost like a body of work. So I sort of went through quite a few different sort of eras where um, Scent was seen as Something that could cure certain ailments. I can't, obviously I did the plague, and I did a few. Um, I did plague water. Oh, I did this thing about onions as well, where this was actually for the Spanish flu, uh, hundred hundred odd years ago. And uh, the idea that you could simply eating onions um, was sort of enough to to, to ward <laughs> off the, uh, the the flu at the time. Um, Again, it did have a certain accidental benefit in that there is certain qualities in obviously fruit and vegetables uh, to to stay healthy uh, and also certain sort of uh, anti-inflammatory qualities in onions. So there was a I like the idea that there's a little bit of truth to some of these um, cures, but because I obviously because I'm a perfumer or rather I sort of use perfume in my work, I tried to think of a way to make to make something like that uh, a, a perfume based sort of product so i basically boiled down some onions um, and sort of just put them into a into a vial really and that was kind of it it was the idea that you could sort of keep hold of this item and it would you know be beneficial to you in that kind of health based sort of way. So I did, yeah, I, I boiled down some onions.
0: Must have smelled and incredible. It, it still does. It's, it's got
1: a really sort of, it's in my studio in Sheffield and you can definitely smell it when you enter the room. <laughs> um, what else was there? There was quite a few of 10 altogether. There was something to do with what was called London water, which was to do with, I think it was Samuel Pepys's diary. He There was uh, some sort of pandemic going on around that time. Idea that mm. uh, I, I think I think at one point it was it was more like an epidemic in London, and so London sort of alchemists or scientists sort of scrambled to make something, and London water was was what they came up with. So I made sort of a a, a new version of that. It was it was all about sort of finding sort of sort of moments in history really where uh, scent was used uh, in order to, uh, to to prevent some sort of illness and. You know how to sort of turn that into a some sort of perfume in the twenty first century.
0: Yeah, it's it's just incredible to think about that because even coming back to something like what you know, mm. hungry water was used for as well. It was these ideas. You, you don't just sort of put them on you. You you ingest yep. them. They're a tonic. You bathe in them as well. And it wasn't just obviously curing ailments. It also encouraged things like yep. youthfulness. I mean, I read this thing that um, apparently the queen of whatever queen mm. of Hungary. This blog was associating this water with. Apparently, she was in her 80s, and she was so youthful because she used this tonic that a 24, 25-year-old prince proposed to her. And I just love this idea of. There's always been this fascination of how can we use Mm. cosmetics or cures and perfumery to kind of mask something, or I don't know, protect.
1: Yeah, there there is. There's there's a huge sort of history of, of. Uh, of that kind of thing going on of course there was um, what I quite like as well is uh, plague doctors where they had their um, kind of uh, the scent was housed in their sort of mask so you had this sort of huge sort of protection with the mask but also you had uh, the protection because the, 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 the scent of whatever it was inside their mask was sort of enough to protect them so the idea that scent Oh. the idea that sort of scent can protect you is sort of obviously quite prevalent and the play Dr Mask is quite you know it's quite striking sort of aspect, yeah and is uh but also housed within that it is this sort of protective sort of layer so I quite like um I quite I use that kind of emblem uh every now and again because because it is so symbolic really of not just the idea that you wear protection but also it, sort of scent cloaks you in a certain protection as well
0: yeah I think what's what's really fascinating is the whole idea that you know to to get even get your hands on something Mm -hmm. like this it it said a lot about you as a person and it, it communicates something and that's kind of really I think what's so interesting about perfume even today there's certain smells that everyone is not even perfume there's certain sort of you know smell memory and things that instantly sort of takes you somewhere and takes you back somewhere but what I really loved is that you had brought to my attention that this hungry water was really the basis for cologne and perfumes within Europe and how these certain things were used to communicate with with different people and, and in particular you were talking about or you brought to my attention the Victorians, for example, and their love of of flowers and all the different sort of symbolic meanings and all the different ways it was used.
1: Yeah, the the idea that um, that flowers sort of have their own sort of intrinsic sort of meaning uh, is, is something that's actually kind of been around for for a while, uh, long, long before sort of the Victorian era. Uh, however, uh, I think in the Victorian era, it became quite a prominent, it was almost like a hobby, it was a hobbyist sort of thing to do to sort of find out more uh, about about flower sort of symbolism and sort of use it in your sort of everyday sort of activities in order to sort of send messages or, or in sort of quite a silent way, you know, it, it isn't, um, you're not speaking, it's a, a different way of communicating, which again is something that sort of feeds into my own work because the idea that sent is and perfume is something that you can use to communicate with others is sort of it is almost exactly Mm. what what I try and sort of depict in my own work but the idea that um, yeah the idea that flowers uh, have a certain sort of language of their own is very interesting because obviously you can flowers are directly you can directly use flowers in perfume so you can therefore directly sort of say something in perfume which is something that I, I try to try to do in my work but it, yeah like you say with the Victorian sort of era it was kind of short messages that, that, that they uh, that they sent through the language of flowers so certain flowers would just mean yes or no for example so uh, there's obviously a lot of flowers to choose from I think it was pink flowers in general meant yes I think and yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was white flowers that meant no or roses that meant no White roses, I think, meant no. So, yeah. I mean, just that, just that kind of, that sort of simple language found within within just presenting those flowers uh, it is, uh, is quite, quite interesting. But then there was also, I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, flowers, and obviously you can combine flowers with each other. So, in order to sort of almost form sort of sentences, <laughs> a lot of them were based around sort of romance and sort of love and courtship and this kind of thing. Uh, so it was kind of the thing that you'd do if you've sort of met somebody, I guess, and you were sort of almost sending sort of like letters to them, you know, like love letters, but but through sort of the medium of flowers. There was things like white lilies, which meant sort of purity of love, and daisies, which meant that I, I really love you. And but then there was things like poppies, where it meant that I sort of can't love you, or I, I'm sort of love somebody else loves me, sort of thing. So it was it was it was centered around romance, definitely. Mm. Uh, But and and sort of the idea that you could and and suitors and uh, courtship and this kind of thing that was kind of something that I'd sort of found out about and sort of used in my own own work
0: so how did you apply that to your own work because the the whole idea of what I, I find so fascinating is that this was essentially an unspoken language that just near enough everybody knew because it was such a huge I don't know interest and hobby of Victorians if, if you can call it a hobby because it was real taboo to to express your feelings openly in public you had to go about all these very sort of subtle ways and then yeah like you said you know like you've said you know the language of flowers and that was also a book mm-hmm. which I think a lot of Victorians owned and you know a lot of very big sort of flower markets but then this sort of passed down into perfume as well so I'd love to know sort of modern day how how have you sort of applied that through to your work because I know that you you also run a gallery yeah. in Sheffield there was an exhibition where you, you had f- flowers in the window was this anything to do with the oh uh, yes and... that was a,
1: that was an exhibition called botanicals it was a group exhibition I was part of it um, where uh, people responded to the idea of botanicals in their own way so we had lots of different sort of um, floral um, sort of items if you like uh, within the gallery space my my work for that actually was um, it was about preservation uh, uh, and environmental sort of concerns Uh and I I looked at ways of um, sort of trying to use perfume uh, or certainly the discipline sort of and processes found within perfume to preserve um, botanical specimens uh, for the future it was kind of a speculative sort of bit of work about you know what would happen if um, certain plants became um, vulnerable or near extinction? Could you sort of preserve them within a perfume bottle uh, in order to sort of keep them uh, mm-hmm. and then subsequently, you know, farm them and grow them and things like that? So um, I started researching um, and seeing sort of which sort of plants are, are vulnerable. And there's a fair few, unfortunately, you know, that are because of various sort of factors to deal with over sort of harvesting and climate change and all this kind of thing um that are vulnerable things like things that you might not even think are like bananas and chocolates and things like that uh that we, we sort of take for granted so um so for example i did um uh oh and there was one called sort of there was a certain sandalwood as well that was um that was uh, vulnerable and i managed to source sort of ethically uh, some of this uh, an essential oil of this particular sandalwood so the, the idea that oh, you nice. could sort of use that you know preserve that within um a bottle means that you sort of preserved the sort of essence of it and then therefore could you sort of sort of reverse engineer it and then sort of create a sandalwood tree using it in the future you know it was it was just kind of speculative um what would happen in the future sort of uh, body of work I suppose but yeah that was what I did for for that but for in terms of the plants and flower symbolism uh work I, I it's actually it's actually a project that I'm just beginning to work on actually and it's um it's somewhat more uh, I guess serious in Tone compared to the what the victorians were were doing with the symbolism, because it's about um mm. sort of domestic violence uh, actually, and the idea that sometimes you can't you, well there was there was a there was a story that I heard about uh, a woman who was uh, sort of in the cusp of some domestic violence, and she couldn't phone the police because she would therefore give herself away to to who you know who was attacking her. and I think in the end she she did phone the police, but she she said something like, she, she was pretending to order pizza or something. Uh, and luckily, the the, the police on other si- side of the line sort of understood what she was sort of trying to say in, in what she wasn't saying, if that makes sense. So sort of mm. the idea that, you know, sometimes you need to speak, but you can't use words, w- w- was kind of interesting to me. And therefore, I, I sort of embarked upon this idea that, if somebody was in the throes of domestic violence, they could use uh, symbolism, plant symbolism, uh, and the like to to communicate the you know what, that the fact that they need help or the fact that they need to, to run away or, or this kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's in development, but it's um, hopefully it will be uh, an exhibition in my in my gallery uh, either this year or next year, and hopefully I'll be working with sort of charities uh, in Sheffield as well. Sort of on it to, to do with um, to do with domestic violence, but it, it, I mean, as well as as well as that, it's sort of an example of how perfume can house these sort of more sort of serious uh, and actually quite re- unfortunately quite relatable sort of concepts that are removed from the sort of preconception that it's you know perfume is just something to make you smell nice. Actually, it could it could be something that you could use to communicate with you know with other people with, and it houses these sort of rather I guess real uh there's rather sort of real concepts that we find ourselves in.
0: Oh my goodness. I just think it's so fascinating. And yeah, how a scent can essentially help you say something that potentially could save your life or if you're you know let people know that you're in danger. It's a really interesting concept. I don't know how something like a perfume or flowers can, can help you communicate. That project sounds so fascinating, Michael, you have to tell us when that goes live. Um, it would be great to sort of follow up with that. Yeah, like you said, you know, perfume has, has can be used as a way of communicating yeah. and as a signal. And I think really no one has done that better than Chanel, who is your last person that you've included. Yes.
1: Uh Chanel obviously um is somebody that uh I've sort of come across quite a lot in my own sort of work, especially during, because. She was inspired. certainly with Chanel Number no. Five, she was inspired to to do something different with perfume, and that's what she sort of sought to do to sort of celebrate a more sort of liberal, sort of feminine, uh, sort of spirit of the the sort of of the day. Chanel Number no. Five was made in 1921, mm. and obviously, it it became it sort of appealed to that sort of 1920s sort of flapper. Uh, spirit, but yeah, she she wanted to make a perfume to sort of encapsulate that kind of spirit. And she was a designer, so she she wasn't actually the perfumer that made the perfume. That was uh, a French chemist called Ernest Beau. And the the story of how Chanel Number no. Five came about is is kind of interesting because it incorporates um, some elements of of Coco Chanel's sort of. Personality that you might not have known about. So, basically, Ernest Bow handed her. I think it was ten different vials. Five of them were numbered one to five, and the other five were numbered twenty to twenty-four. And so she she was presented with these small vials, uh, and she chose the number five out of the vials uh, as the one that she wanted to uh, to turn into Chanel number five. Presumably because she liked it the best, but also. it's interesting that she she was quite a superstitious person and the number five, she thought it had some sort of significance to her to her life in general.
0: Yeah, she had an affinity have, yeah, with the number right. five. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so it's kind of, a, a, as an artist, looking at that sort of narrative f- from my own point of view, the, the idea that this woman l- liked that smell the best isn't necessarily true. It could just be that she was so sort of embroiled by, by the number that, that sort of sense of superstition sort of took over uh, and that was why she she chose that particular scent it's just it's one of those sort of I guess it's like a, a human sort of um, side of the perfume making process that you don't necessarily see you know when you just pick a perfume up off the shelf the idea that there's a there's a woman and a man behind this perfume um, uh, and 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 that there's superstition and collaboration, you know, involved within making this perfume is, uh, is interesting to me. Cause you know, that's, that's part of my sort of perfume making process as well. I, I sort of, um, especially as I consider myself sort of an, an artist over being a perfumer it's almost like sometimes I feel like I'm sort of winging it a bit, or I feel like I'm overly sort of experimenting, not being, disciplined enough uh feeling a bit sort of I guess vulnerable within the industry because I don't I don't know as much as a master perfumer would. um but but then you look at something like the the narrative between Kokushanala and bow, and you kind of think well they had their own kind of um sort of hangups and superstitions and vulnerabilities as well uh and that was kind of what drew me to that sort of story really.
0: Yeah I love that and also I think it's you know I think that will speak to a lot of people as well because I think it also shows that you know someone like Chanel who is now so bonkersly world famous and known and something as iconic Mm -hmm. as Chanel number five was a collaboration and something where she wanted to do something but she didn't have the tools and equipment Mm -hmm. so she sought helping someone else and together they created something when you know the story behind something it just makes it so much more interesting and I think that's a great thing to remember with art because in art you only ever see the finished product the finished artwork you don't think about that artist at their easel in their studio at the foundry there's so much there's such a process for it to get to the end point and I think that's a really sort of nice sort of night life lesson almost you know it's not about the finished yeah. product it's it's the journey and, and what you do to get yeah and I and think you win. could
1: apply that sort of uh sort of method of thinking to to perfumery as well I mean when you fight when you see a perfume you know in the in a supermarket shelf for example there's actually behind all of that there's this huge history of sort of alchemy and chemistry and sort of refining ingredients over a course of years and uh you know all the things we talked about in terms of how perfume sort of went off on these tangents of of uh, medicine and uh and symbolism and things like that to become gradually and gradually refined as a process in order to make the sort of more commercial sort of viable perfumes that we know today uh it's something that we take for granted a little bit i think and it's um It's also one of those things where I'm all about sort of challenging our preconceptions of perfume, really, because we do think of it as this sort of product that you can just pick up off the shelf. But actually, what if we sort of aligned it to the idea that, you know, it can house the same sort of concepts uh, as the likes of painting and sculpture? Because actually it does have a very sort of similar history in a way, It's, it's a history that goes back absolutely, you know, centuries and centuries. Uh, and yet it's it's we don't quite revere it the same way as we do the likes of the more sort of visual sort of art I don't think
0: well that's it and that's why I would when you when you wrote me to sort of pitch this I was like this is such an art form absolutely and I think it's it's very much kind of like it falls into the same thing as like architecture and design and even things like your car people completely take for granted that that's been designed and there's a process and someone has had to you know master their craft in order for you to sort of have the end product so I I Mm -hmm. am firmly banging the drum for the art of you know the art of perfume here it's such an interesting history um but I have to ask art wise do you know very many artists that have explored perfume because I only know one by chance by complete chance and I completely forgot about it until this Um... morning
1: I mean there's there's certainly are there's certainly artists that use sort of scent sort of in their in their work uh, every now and again um, but it's one of those things that kind of it comes across as sort of kind of quite gimmicky sometimes uh, and the, the idea that it's scent for mm-hmm. scent's sake really uh, just so that they can say that it's been you know utilized in in their work but what what I'm kind of What I'm always kind of careful of doing is making sure that my work is kind of quite disciplined uh, and kind of sticks quite stringently to the idea of perfume making. Because then I think you sort of eradicate that sort of sense of it being gimmicking. It becomes quite, um, there's a certain sort of, it has a certain integrity when you've got this kind of discipline behind it. Because having that discipline behind it subsequently means you've got the, the sort of that history. Uh, uh, of the perfume making process behind you sort of as well and I've not I've not actually come across anybody that that uses sort of perfume specifically in work I just know artists that, that have used sort of scent in their own way so I mean mm. it's one of those things that like it's kind of surprising that it's not it's not utilized more because there is this sort of absolute craft behind it
0: Um, well that's it and it's kind of like you know a smell can really take you somewhere and it's it's also a a technique used by um so for example my sister when she was 16 used to work in a candy shop and you know a sweet store and they pumped the sweet shop full of the smell of sweet sugar because researchers found that it, it made people want to buy more So it can be used as this tool to not only sort of communicate with, but also manipulate an action, which I find so interesting. But um, so I thought of this artist this morning, actually, who um, he's actually a sculptor called Geoffrey Clark. And um, I was lucky enough that I've seen this this piece, actually. And he used perfume, a little bit of a sort of strange, weird situation. But essentially, he was having an affair. And he created this sculpture where it's it's interactive. So you have sort of Mm. two, he has has two homes, so his wife and his mistress. And then he has this car and he's made this little um, kind of like tree-lined pathway and a little car between each structure. And within the structure, it was essentially the smells that he remembered when he was leaving his wife's house to go to his mistress's house so for example it would be the smell of like their bed linen and then the smell of sort of trees and then when he was in the car but in all these little places there was vials that were supposed to be people and you would take the sort of the the, the top off the vial and you would smell it and for example in the car he had um, a vial Mm. that smelled like leather so he had the leather gloves of his for driving and then when he got to his mistress's it was um the smell of her cleaning products and um these smells that essentially it was to help the viewer move through the story and and the work with him and really sort of take them in kind of an attempt perhaps at like a virtual reality I mean is that something that that you because I'm trying to think when you when you do it with with your work for example do you have vials that people pick up or is it something that you know you spray the canvas with um and and also like another question I have is you know the longevity of, of a scent for example because how, how long do you uh, so
1: yeah my, I mean for? my my work generally um is is vial sort of based so uh or certainly bottle based so it one of my exhibitions if you come in you'd be presented with sort of a series of bottles representing a certain sort of facet of, of, of work that I'm particularly you know working on so to give an example of um Previously, I mentioned the perfume portraits that I was making. Um, one of those exhibitions would comprise of a sort of a series, say ten perfumes, and each of those perfumes would be uh, a portrait of somebody. Mm. Uh, and the idea is it's kind of interactive, I guess, in that you would sort of go up and sort of smell the the uh, the perfume, uh, and there'd be a bit of text about what was in it and sort of how I co- sort of came about making that particular sort of perfume because again it's kind of one of those things that I sort of tap into the sort of history not just a perfume but the history history in general in order to sort of arrive at some of the uh, sort of combinations of scents that I that I make Um, so yeah I try generally it 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 is uh, quite it looks I like the idea that it kind of looks a bit like it could be some sort of sort of concept concept sort of store you know where you go in and and buy a perfume, but actually, you know, scratch the surface, and actually, yeah. it's, a, it's an art sort of, you know, installation that that talks about the idea of perfume is an art form. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of like the idea yeah. that, uh, you know, for, for on first glance, you might just dismiss it a little bit as being just a perfume shop, uh, but then if you sort of go in and look about, you know, look at what I've done, then it would reveal itself sort of to you sort of over time my the perfumes um they do link they do linger in the air quite quite a lot actually uh, especially when you've got mm. it's interesting um sometimes sometimes i don't make as many perfumes as people might expect within a space so it, i can have quite a large sort of space but i've only made you know sort of 10, 15 perfumes. And people sometimes are taken aback by that because it it looks relatively empty. But actually what the reason why I do that is because I want the perfumes to sort of sort of exist in their on their own terms. And when you've got 10 of them and they sort of they sort of fill the space in, you know, with their own sort of scent. So you have to be sort of careful uh, not to sort of overcomplicate how the room smells because well it can get quite potent and it can be quite difficult to sort of pinpoint exactly what perfume you're smelling so it's kind of like a skill that I've had to sort of establish over the years where less less is more really uh but to the untrained eye I guess it looks like I've just put a couple of perfumes on a shelf in this big sort of space and it it looks a little bit like there's not a lot of work in there but actually it's just it's kind of I guess it's a way of curating scent really which is uh like I say discipline that uh I've, I've had to sort of learn quite quickly over the last couple of years.
0: I, I think this is is honestly so fascinating, Michael. Like it's honestly blown my mind. And I also think that whole idea of when people just kind of mm. look in and, and perhaps only see a couple of vials, that is classic yeah. art exhibition though. Like, you know, it is, you know, galleries are, I don't know, they they hide multitudes and, and hours and hours and hours of hard work and it's so, I, this is why I think it's always so good for people to remind themselves that this finished product is it, there's also been a, a journey there I mean I, I know you're saying I mean I've only made 15 to you know 10 to yeah. 15 perfumes having never made a perfume and, ne- and not even knowing where to start I find it so impressive and so so interesting so yeah I've just I've just loved this and it's really made me think of perfume and the art of perfume and how you can apply it within art to enhance the experience you know take the experience beyond a visual you know apply it to a different sense it's incredible I just love it I think it's I think it's amazing Michael thank you so so much for coming on and and talking to us about the history of perfumery and you know your, your your incredible art practice um is there anything that you feel that you've that you think? Oh gosh, I haven't mentioned this yet, or there's something that's an important point about. Um, I was just thinking perfume.
1: then, actually, when you were talking about um, the fact that I, I said that I've j- just made you know a handful of perfumes for an exhibition. It was one. This is something that I've only just really well, not only just realised, but um, the idea that I, I just go off and make some perfume, even to sort of perfumers, is it, quite a. Um, it. it my process is quite different to theirs because they don't make that many perfumes in a year if they make one every six months uh, it's it's a lot of perfumes and the reason for that is because they have a lot to think about in terms of sort of branding and uh, talking you know sort of feedback from customers and you know all the kind of commercial sort of elements that go into that whereas I feel quite sort of liberated in my sort of position as an artist that is making perfume that I even though I'm disciplined in how I make perfume I don't have to be disciplined in um, exactly sort of how it smells it doesn't have to be uh, an exact sort of science it doesn't have to be the the sort of branding doesn't have to even be there let alone Mm. be an exact science Um, and it's weird I was talking to some sort of uh, fragrance industry people uh, about a year or two ago and they were almost kind of jealous of the fact that I have sort of, I'm quite liberated in I can make mistakes and I can make perfumes that wouldn't be commercially viable. And I don't have to worry about branding and, you know, it doesn't matter if I fail in any particular way. So some people sometimes ask me, like, do you ever want to be sort of an established sort of perfumer? Um, And my answer to that is no, really, because it would sort of, I'd lose that sort of that freedom, Uh, the idea that I'm sort of I'm almost a bit of an outsider looking into the industry in my position as an artist that's making perfume. And I like that position (laughs) and I don't think I'd want to relinquish it sort of anytime soon. I think if I became a a sort of a perfumer, I would sort of lose that sort of, I guess, that sense of experimentation and curiosity that drives the work that I make at the moment.
0: Well that's it and yeah. you know first and foremost you are an artist and what's the one thing you, you can't do to an artist is cage them down yeah okay some artists you know have their so, so-called so sort of party pieces that pay the bills but it's it's that, that's the whole point of creating and being an artist there's a love for it and experimentation and failing and picking up something and and maybe like leaving it for a little while it's it's, that's part of the whole process and yeah Yeah, like exactly yeah yeah. why would you give up that freedom (laughs) um michael i have loved this (laughs) i could literally talk to you about this for about four and a half hours um but um i want people to who's who's listening i know they'll have questions so please do get in touch with michael but before um you tell us where we can find you i do have one question it is the joe's art history podcast and I'm trying to remember to ask right. everyone this. I'm about 50-50 at the moment, and you—you you can take it as sort of wide or as personal to to you. But the question is, why is art
1: uh, important? Uh, well, a uh, big question. Um, I, th- I think—I mean, for me, art is, art is important mm. because um, it, it's a—it's a really powerful way of of communicating with people, uh, people that you wouldn't necessarily. You know meet or talk to in in your in your life normally and i like the idea that my my work provides well in my work in particular i like the idea that perfume is kind of for everyone and that's kind of where that the perfumer of the people sort of idea came into into fruition because the idea that you can the art can allow you to sort of share your sort of skills and, and your discipline with other people sort of gives them a certain sort of agency which they can then go and sort of utilize in their own sort of way really um so the idea that you can communicate uh, the uh, ideas uh, that something is for everyone you know makes it sort of makes your work inclusive of of people and the idea that you know, you, you're creating your own sort of inclusive, cohesive sort of network or society or community of, of people is quite a powerful thing to be able to do, uh, and it's kind of what I always strive to do in my work, uh, and it's it's important um, because it, it drives sort of a sense of community and therefore sort of well-being and um, friendship, actually, you know, you can sort of forge these kind of friendships uh, in f- through that the art that you make. So, yeah, I don't, don't know if that was a bit of a rambling sort of, <laughs> sort of answer to the question. But uh, that's kind of what I'm about, really.
0: No, no, not at all. And I and I firmly stand with you, you know, like, um, you know, you say you're, you're a performer of the people. I've, you know, mm. I've crowned myself Arts for All champion because it's so important and You know, the more people you know, the more people that understand how beneficial it is to look at art and engage with art and the things that not only you'll learn, but like you said, the friendships that you can make from it. I have made so many great friends through not just this podcast, but through connecting with people because of art. And that's you know, the the only thing that perhaps at the moment at that moment in time that we have in common and sometimes it's not even what you have in common sometimes people come into the gallery that I work for for example and they're like I don't like this and then we start a conversation and then it just takes you to this place and and I was thinking this earlier actually when when I was researching for this I was like there is never it's never not a good idea Mm. or to have a conversation about things about anything like for example perfume It, it you can learn so much from it and you can you know expand and 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 grow and yeah i just think it's yeah so now i've (laughs) now rambled on top of your wonderful answer michael but (laughs) but um no i'm 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 really passionate about this and and you are too so it's so great michael i am sure you are going to get a lot of questions um so where can people Uh, find you uh, so
1: people can find out about me on my website so michaelbukowski.com uh, i'm also on instagram and twitter uh at, at m Bukowski.
0: that's great yes, and you also I, um, uh, run you run a gallery, gallery as well uh,
1: called frontier gallery um in sheffield um obviously it's closed at the moment but uh, we've hopefully we'll have uh, a, a good sort of program of events coming up uh, in the future
0: amazing and people can find your incredible series plague for plague's sake on your Instagram. Oh, yeah. amazing and i'll leave links to all of that in the show notes below michael once again thank you thank so you. much it's this has been, been such Cheers. an interesting chat and there you have it the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. I would just once again like to thank Michael for coming on and speaking so brilliantly about the art of perfume, the history of perfume and perfumers' practice. It was such an interesting conversation and a really interesting, I don't know, it was just interesting to sort of stop and reflect on something that we use every single day or near enough every single day and to really appreciate the history in something and, and that there is a, a language and a skill that goes into the art of perfume. I hope you have learned something today, I learned absolutely loads and I absolutely loved talking to Michael about this. And if you've been listening and you know any artists actually that use perfume within their practice, please do get in touch. I'm kind of fascinated to find out, yeah, essentially just different people that have embraced this element within their art. At the end of the podcast there, the audio kind of overlapped a little bit. So I just wanted to reiterate that Michael's youtube channel will be in the show notes below as well as the instagram page for the gallery that he runs in sheffield called frontier gallery so please do follow and check them out and if you've enjoyed this episode michael's instagram and website details are also in the show notes below please do ping him a message and let him know that you enjoyed it and if you have any questions i'm sure he'd be absolutely happy to answer them If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, rate, and subscribe. And if you were able to, it would be really brilliant if you could leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Again, I don't think you can leave reviews on Spotify, but if you're listening to this on iTunes, which I think currently 40% of all listeners do, it would be really, really lovely if you could ping us a couple of stars and leave a wee review if you've enjoyed it. Of course, there is absolutely no pressure to do so. If you want to get in touch to talk about anything that you heard in the podcast today please feel free to do so you can email me joesarthistory at gmail.com all the one word or you can find me on instagram at joesarthistory my dms are always open and while you're there if you want to give me a wee follow as well that would be brilliant i don't just talk about what goes on in the podcast i write a few times a week about different artists at the moment we're recording this it's march 2021 i'm currently doing an e to z of great women artists so if you want to learn a little bit more about that pop on over to my instagram and you can find me on there finally i have been joe mclaughlin your host and resident art historian and thank you so so much for listening and i look forward to welcoming you next time on the joe's art history podcast until then keep learning and remember art is for all Bye.